From the time he started playing the drums at the age of nine, singer-songwriter Zach Jones proved he was a natural-born talent. When it's all over and my time is at hand, I want to go out the way I began. Satin and cedar, what is that worth? Just strip me down, give me back to this earth. From appearing on MTV's 2003 reality series Made with his high school bandmates the Slycaps, to developing his proficiency and technique at New York City's famed Drummers Collective, Jones would later find himself as an in-demand sideman for such renowned artists as Sting, A Great Big World, L King, Secret Someones, and more. But with his new band, Zach Jones and the Tricky Bits, Jones steps to the front of the stage to reveal his talents as singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and producer. With chimey guitars and an emphasis on lyrics and melody, Zach Jones and the Tricky Bits are living proof of the continuing charm of power pop, centered around Zach's undeniable vocal talent and gleeful, witty songcraft with songs that have the tunefulness and longing of the early Beatles, The Birds, Big Star, and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Ashes are ashes and dirt is dirt. I'll be a memory, so how can it hurt? To break down and build up and bear some fruit. I'll wrap me up in a mushroom suit. I'm Charles Urich, and this is Life in the Grooves. Here is my conversation with Zach Jones. So from a very early age, your family was very much a part of your musical development. How did it all start for you? I was always very aware of music. It was always around. And where'd you grow up? I grew up in southern New Jersey, near Long Beach Island. Down on the Jersey and, Shore. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a third generation LBI musician. My grandfather played a lot of the same bars and clubs that my dad later played and still does, and I played a lot of the same spots too. And uh, yeah, there was always music around. My dad mostly is a guitar player and a singer, and uh, I tried to play guitar when I was young, tried to play keyboard, sort of got bored with both of them quickly. And then uh, there was a drum set at our church, and I would go sometimes with my dad after school or on the weekends. and. Uh, I just started trying to play the drums and I think he saw that I was trying to make out a beat or, or do something other than just kind of slamming away at them. And so he showed me a couple things and that that was just the first time that it really clicked for me was when I got behind the drum set and everything since then has sort of been born out of uh, out of that. And how old were you at this point? I was nine years old when I started playing drums and I think I was maybe like seven or eight when I tried to play guitar and, and bailed and all that. But I think we got a drum set. A friend of ours gave us a drum set when I was maybe 10. Uh, then I finally had one in the house, and then it was just off to the races. Do you have any memories of playing in front of an audience for the first time? Or in your case, because of your family's involvement in the church, was it playing in front of the congregation? That's a good question. I don't. 
I don't have a very clear memory of my first time playing in front of people. I have I have clear memories of singing in front of people for the first time and performing in uh in theatrical productions, which I I also started doing around the same time. I think I was eight when I did my first show, and uh, when I play drums, I'm on stage. I'm more focused on the people I'm on stage with. There's something about when I when I'm singing, uh, especially if I'm fronting a band, when I'm trying to sort of get mm-hmm. across to the audience in a different way. But I can remember always being really focused on the back of my dad's head or the side of his head or, or whatever it was, <laughs> you know, waiting for cues and, and uh, you know, trying to keep up with the other guys in the band, all of whom were, uh, you know, a couple decades older than me at least. You bring up a very interesting perspective because as a drummer, you're having to relate to your fellow musicians on stage. Yeah. But you also have the perspective of being out front uh, relating to an audience. How are those two worlds different for you? It's interesting. I I do play drums when I sing. I do, you know, a lot of background vocals and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't sing lead behind the kit a whole lot and and when I do my project I prefer to be on guitar. I I don't know why I I have an easier time I think sort of connecting when I when I don't feel like I'm behind a barrier and the drum set is kind of a little barrier that you have in front of you. But it does help when you're up on a drum riser or something. That's always good. Mm-hmm. It's it's not that I'm ignoring the audience, but I definitely am more <laughs> attuned to the people on stage and you know ma- making sure everybody feels good and that we're locking in and supporting whoever's singing or whoever's fronting the group. You mentioned earlier that musical theater was a big part of your childhood and upbringing, and you being from Long Beach Island. I'm somewhat familiar with that area and know of the Surflight Theater, which yeah. has been doing what they call Broadway at the Beach since the 1950s. How did you get involved? I got started at the Surflight through Our Gang Players, which was the local community theater group. Surflight was always, uh, at least since the 80s, uh, was more of like the professional summer stock theater. And they always had local talent in the shows, but... Um, our gang was, was really the community theater, which was like anyone could join. Anybody could be a part of the show. I think friends of my parents told them about it and thought that I'd be a, a good fit or I might have fun doing it. And so I auditioned for, for the, the kids division show when I was eight years old and got cast and got like a speaking part. And that was so exciting. And, um, and from there, the, the surflight folks uh we used to perform at the surflight with our gang players and the surflight folks would invite some of the kids from our gang to perform in the shows during the summer when they needed kid actors and so uh they asked me to come do a few shows that year that was 1996 so did you just spend all of your summer hanging out at the theater yeah spent the summer kind of living over at the theater doing small (laughs) roles in like fiddler on the roof and annie get your gun and that's when I really got hooked and just loved being around the place and loved being around theater people and music people. And I think that's when I sort of found my my clan, you know. There is a sinking in my chest, second fiddle, second best, once again. 
2016 debut EP Rendezvous with a Comet, you're listening to Zach Jones and the Tricky Bits with Living in Your Past. Having all of this exposure to musical theater at a young age, did that have a major influence on your style of songwriting as well? Absolutely. You know, there was always music around when I was a kid, but when, when I really started paying attention and falling in love with music, it was kind of like the Beatles and Irving Berlin and Cole Porter and Rodgers and Hammerstein all at the same time. And, uh, and you know, the fact that the Beatles mm-hmm. covered some of that stuff on their early records, like Till There Was You, and um, that was just uh-huh. even cooler for me that, that those worlds kind of overlapped uh, in that way. So, yeah, the it, musical theater has always been kind of an equal love of mine. I just... I think I found more of a path in pop music, but it's it they, they definitely sort of feed each other for me. Now, is it true that your father was a huge Monkees fan? Yeah, yeah. My dad, um, my dad was a little too young for the Beatles as they were happening, uh-huh. but he was a huge Monkees fan as a kid, and uh, the Monkees and the Beatles and Zeppelin and the Stones, uh, the Allman Brothers is a favorite of his. Little Feet. Um, a lot of Motown and Stax records and like sixties mm-hmm. and seventies soul stuff. Um, so that was all kind of in constant rotation on car trips and stuff. And then my parents, it was really what, whatever show we did at the theater, they would get me the soundtrack like on cassette or on CD. And so I had a lot of those show tune soundtracks uh, growing up too. So I listen to that stuff obsessively too, like the Music Man and Evita and classic show tunes with catchy melodies. Yeah, the the melodies on on that theater, you know, the the musical theater scores. That stuff absolutely creeps into the way that I write songs. I think, um, even though I don't write for theater, not that I wouldn't like to, but it's all kind of meshed together for me in terms of the songwriting sensibility. So when did things begin to turn for you in terms of having success with one of your earlier bands? I had a band that I started with a few of my friends through our gang players, through the theater uh, community, called the Sly Caps. And that was my sort of middle school, high school band. Eventually, because I was involved with the theater, I started playing in the orchestra pit for shows. Um, And at some point I started playing in the orchestra pit more than I was playing on stage. And when I played in the orchestra pit, I would get paid a little bit of money. (laughs) But when I was on stage, I wouldn't. (laughs) And I think that that kind of rung a bell in my head of, um, oh, I guess this this is a job that you can have. And 
not that acting isn't a job, but it didn't seem like it at the time. Um, at least not in my small world. Mm-hmm. So I loved being in a band and sort of realizing that I could I could make a living out of it. Now, the Sly Caps actually caught the attention of MTV. That's right, yeah. And how did that all come about? My understanding is that they were they were starting this new show called Made, which was about like high school kids achieving their dreams, basically. And they came to our high school. They came to our high school like looking for uh, for people to be on the show, and they explicitly said they didn't want musicians. Uh, my friend Matt, who was who I was in the band with, Matt Fisher, he just was like, "I'm gonna go bring them a demo," and Matt went with our demo tape. And was like, here, just take this. And they said, we don't want musicians. And he said, well, it's better sitting in your car than mine. So just take it. And they took it and they listened to it. And a little while later, we got a phone call. And they were interested in sort of doing like some pre-interview stuff with us on camera. And they came down. They met all of us. We did all these interviews. And then they decided to cast us in the show. Because it was a reality show, um, how much time did they spend with you? They lived in Manahawkin in my hometown for like, I don't know, maybe like six months or something, uh-huh. the camera people, and followed us around. And they paired us with uh, this guy, Matt Shelton, who had been a road manager for the Stones in the mm-hmm. 90s. And, uh, you know, the, the idea behind the show was that they would pair you with like a coach, like somebody who was working in your chosen field uh-huh. and that that person would help you sort of. Uh, become successful and so yeah Matt Shelton was like so cool and so wonderful to us and helped us book shows and we made an EP uh, up in the city like we got to go record uh, in a real studio and I mean all that stuff was just like amazing for us at the time so you're living the dream and you're still in high school yeah during high school yeah it seems like this show was uh, a, almost the precursor to what we see today with uh, shows like The Voice um, that have mentors and people to help guide your career. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it was around that time of like American Idol was just starting, and mm-hmm. um, I remember we I think we were the second episode of the show, and it aired at like nine a.m. on a Saturday or something. It was like kind of like the MTV graveyard, but then. The, the show picked up over time and w- was a bit more of a thing and uh, uh, but the cool the coolest part of that was that we got to perform on TRL which was still a huge deal at the time you know the uh, the music video show yeah and because it was the early days of it was like right before myspace mm-hmm. but we we had like a little free website that we had made and there were some like chat rooms and stuff uh-huh. and so we were able to kind of parlay it for for like a summer into going out on the road and like playing shows and um we we toured with this band called copper pot and like toured up and down the east coast and we got to go to la and play a gig out there and just like do do all this stuff mm-hmm. at you know i was 16 wow um and those were amazing experiences at that age like just to get a taste of it and um yeah so much fun was Friday night and I'm home all night All night And Saturday night doesn't look much better Oh, And nobody likes me because I'm a loser Hey, you're a loser But everything's gonna go my way someday Someday Everything's gonna go my way someday 
From their 2002 debut EP, you've been listening to the music of the Sly Caps, a band that gained notoriety on the MTV reality series Made back in 2003, and features on drums my guest today, Zach Jones. Now, who in the group was responsible for writing and arranging this material? My friend Matt Fisher and my friend Justin Bohr wrote all the songs for that band, Mm -hmm. and I loved, like, learning those songs and coming up with parts and coming up with our own arrangements for those songs. I really, that's always been one of my favorite parts of this whole thing. You know, growing up, I never had a summer job like scooping ice cream or uh, <laughs> working at a car wash or anything like that. I I just got to play drums. Every kid's dream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, who are some of your mentors and teachers that helped you develop your skill and technique as a drummer? The, the big people, a uh, couple of my dad's close friends, a guy named Tim Tooker, who's basically my uncle, and a guy named Earl Bennett, a guy named Ray Hahn. They were all like friends of my dad's, guys who played with him who were willing to let me hang out and let me sit in and show me stuff, and that was huge. Uh, I had a, a great percussion teacher in middle school and high school, a guy named Tom Murphy, who taught me how to read music and kind of made me get serious about that side of things. And when I was in high school, I got to take a few lessons with Bernard Purdy, mm-hmm. who is like one of yep. the all-time, you know, all-time session great legends. session drummers. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Played with Aretha and Steely Dan and like just a, many, many. Yeah, yeah. like everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <you> everybody. <know? laughs> uh, and he was, I mean, just to be in a room with him and listen to him play was like such a gift. Mm-hmm. And um, he was really good to me and to my family and, you know, learning from, from his, uh, his feel and his dynamic sense and um, like sense of the song and all of that. Mm -hmm. And then there was a guy named Kim Plainfield who taught at the drummers collective, which, which is where I sort of ended up. And out of high school, I didn't go to college, but I went to this place called the collective, uh, here in New York and Kim and a guy named Peter Retzlaff were like my two real mentors there. And, those guys got me serious about my technique, like really helped me get my hands together. And it took me a long time to really get the technical stuff down, mm-hmm. but I'm glad I did, you know, just in terms of like health and longevity and sounding better. So how much time did you spend at the collective? The program was two years and I did one year there. It was a year of like really intensive kind of every day, like you're either practicing on your own or you have a class. Mm-hmm. And the way they do it at the collective, which was cool, was that every week you would focus on a new style of music. So one week we'd do reggae, one week we'd do Afro-Cuban music, one week we'd do like 50s jazz, one week we'd do James Brown style funk stuff, like whatever. So you get a really wide range of styles and feels and you learn it from people who actually play that music for a living. Um all in the name of sort of just being a, a well-rounded, versatile player. Now, did you stay in New York after the collective, and what were you hoping to do at that point? I I was sort of back and forth between home and New York for a while. I had a band with, with my friend Matt Fisher, who was in the Slycaps, 
and we played a lot. We made a couple records, uh-huh. and then I also joined a band in New York called Running Still. I, I found those guys on Craigslist, which was <laughs> crazy, and then I got this offer to go on the road for like a year playing in the orchestra pit for Annie the Musical, and it just sounded so fun, <laughs> you know, at like 20, 20 or 21, however old I was, to go out and spend that year just traveling around the States and making money playing music. So that's what I did. And and I, I think I needed needed a change of pace. The shuttling back and forth to New York and home was getting old. And I, I don't know, financially, I think I felt a little stuck and creatively I felt a little stuck. And so it felt good to to just get out on the road and focus on that for a while. Now, for someone with your talent and skill set, I guess playing the drums just wasn't going to be enough. Because <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned you were a little bit creatively frustrated, but you know, where did the desire come from to be a songwriter? That's a good question. I mean, I've always loved songs, and I think at the root of playing drums and at the root of producing records and at the root of all of that stuff, you know, my my relationship to music, period, really, is like, I just love great songs uh, above all else. I love great records. I love great grooves. I love great voices. I love all of that. But if the song isn't there, uh, I kind of check out. So for me, it's, it's really all about that. Now, uh, earlier in the conversation, you told me that you actually bailed on trying to teach yourself how to play the guitar when you were a lot younger. Yeah. So how does this now factor into you wanting to become a songwriter? While I was on the Annie tour, I brought a guitar with me because I didn't know how to play guitar yet. And so I decided one of my projects on that tour was going to be to learn how to play guitar at least like a little bit, you know. Uh And so I I taught myself out of this Beatles chord song book that I had. And while I was on that tour, like if there was an open mic or something, I might go play a song. You know, just just I was just starting to sort of dip my toe in the idea of making my own music. Uh And I moved back to the city after the Annie tour because I had saved up some money and I felt like I could afford to come live in New York City again. I was 21, so I could get into bars and like actually go meet people and be around the music scene. And the the other thing that happened at that time when I moved back to New York was playing drums for an artist named Emily Long, who became like a really close friend of mine and a close collaborator. And she and I started a band called The Stone Lonesome, which was my first real foray into writing songs singing them and producing them. She's never learned a way of living For anybody but herself So if you see her out tonight Shining like a ray of light Her auburn hair Stars reflected in her Just might make you think she's quite a woman, but she's a girl in disguise. Lead you down a so here we have a great example of your first foray into songwriting and producing with a track called Bridge to Nowhere from The Stone Lonesome. 
So how did all of this lead to you becoming a solo artist along with the formation of the Tricky Bits? Well, the the Stone Lonesome uh, was sort of an alt-country group um, in the vein of like Whiskey Town or um, Old 97s or, you know, uh, any of those bands. And I've always loved that music and I, I really liked writing in that style. But I think way deep down inside, the thing that I sort of connect to most and the thing that really resonates with me the most is chimey guitar pop music and maybe there's a bit of a 60s R&B soul influence in there too that's like my favorite stuff Rubber Soul and Revolver are easily my favorite Beatles records I love that era of their thing when they were kind of tipping the hat to like American music uh American folk and American R&B and and the birds too you know and um Tom Petty obviously uh, is like the king of that thing. Mm-hmm. Big stars was a huge, huge deal for me. I think those things were in my mind, and I wanted to make something that spoke to that, and make something that fit in that lineage. And so the the, the real I think impetus for the whole thing was playing in a great big world and getting to be close with my friend Oscar Albus Rodriguez, who plays guitar in a great big world. Um, we just struck up this great friendship. Uh, sort of right away when we when he joined that band and we loved so much of the same stuff we both love power pop we both love the Beatles we both love Tom Petty we had so many like overlapping tastes and loves and and he knows how to play that stuff so well it's so intuitive for him so there was a period of time where I left a great big world to go play with secret someone's sort of full-time and Oscar and I had been seeing each other all the time because we were on the road with a great big world together. While I was out of a great big world and and on the road with Secret Someones, when I was home, Oscar and I, sort of our excuse to keep working together was to start chipping away at this first Tricky Bits EP. The the idea being that we were going to make something that felt like it belonged in that power pop sort of world and tipped, tipped its hat to those influences and really just sort of figure out what what this thing sounded like, you know, when, when the two of us made this thing together. And so it just felt so, so exciting to, to do that, to, to just like wear those influences on our sleeve and make this thing that felt kind of, uh, exactly like the thing we wanted to make and, and the thing that served those songs the best. Talk to me slowly now, tell me what you're feeling. You've been listening to the music of Zach Jones and the Tricky Bits with The Losing End. Now, as you mentioned in the last segment, you and Oscar were obviously the driving force behind the production of that record. 
But who else in the band contributes to your overall sound? Yeah, we co-produced that record, and other than the two of us, Hannah Winkler sings all the harmonies on it, and uh, to me that's like another big part of the sound of that band is um, I've always loved close harmony singing. I love the Everly Brothers. I love uh, John and Paul, obviously, and Graham Parsons and Emma Lou Harris singing together. And so Hannah's voice, Hannah's like the the greatest harmony singer I know, and having her her voice in there to me is also just like such a part of the sound. And then uh, Jenny Owen Youngs, our, our friend who I, I co-wrote one of the songs with, and I think that's it. I think otherwise that first record is just that crew. Now, how different is the live version of the Tricky Bits with you being out front versus the uh, studio version? Yeah, the live the live Tricky Bits, the lineup that has played the most shows together is uh, it's me and Oscar and Hannah and then Brian Killeen on bass and a guy named Dave Burnett on drums who, if I'm not going to play drums, uh, man, Dave Burnett is, uh, I could not be happier to, <laughs> to play music with that guy. He's incredible. Um, and so that's usually the, the Tricky Bits lineup. And we sort of use the, the records as a template for, for the live sound. But I, I'm also a big fan of just kind of letting the live thing be the live thing. And, you know, be, because we made that first record mostly as a duo, you know, doing all these overdubs and stuff, the process of playing it live, I feel like the songs have really grown a lot over the years. And it feels like it breathes in a different way now because we've played those songs enough at this point live. just listening to a 2017 release called Picture from your EP Are You a Hologram. Now this is an album that has more of what I would describe as mystical and atmospheric but also it has those traditional folk sensibilities as well. What was your goal here creatively when you were making this record? You know that that was a record where I had a couple of those tunes and I wasn't sure what to do with them and there were a couple sort of converging influences of like, uh, there's a band called Dawes that I love uh-huh. and they did a Spotify sessions where the drummer is programming like a, like a cheap old drum machine. And it's this kind of like acoustic ish, but it has this element of this, uh, cheap little drum machine. And I just loved it. Like I just loved the sound of, of that. And so I started playing with samples of all these weird old drum machines. And so I would like make a loop and play acoustic guitar over that and sort of do this like, you know, electro folk thing (laughs) and then layer some, you know, acoustic drums over them or whatever. And uh, Oscar plays so great on that record. And our friend Billy Libby, who I wrote the song Picture with, um, the two of those guys are so good at that, like ambient guitar thing. Uh So those things all kind of came together on that record. And also that was when... Phoebe Bridger's first album came out and I just like I I was just so obsessed with that record and still am and 
just sonically and lyrically and everything about that record really kind of blew my mind. And so I wanted to make something that tipped its hat to that a little bit. Um, it's just so atmospheric, but at the center of it are these great folk songs. And so that was the, the goal with that record. I want to ask you about a single you put out called Lonesome and Blue, Yeah, which is a, a great tribute to all of those 60s pop influences you spoke about earlier. Yep, uh, It has great harmonies, great production value. Um, what went into the making of this recording? Well, that was a song that I, I had that chorus forever. I wrote that chorus years ago, and I remember very specifically I watched... Uh, Roy Orbison's A Black and White Night, that great concert film from the 80s, I think it is. Yeah, I believe it was 1988. It was originally done as a television special on Cinemax. Yeah. Um, it's like, you know, Roy and Tom Waits and Bruce. And he he's just like, he's so on fire in, on that. I mean, his voice and his writing and all of it. And I, I remember very distinctly like watching that DVD I forget which song it was, but I, I like paused the DVD. I picked up my guitar. I wrote that chorus. It was, again, it was one of those times that was like, it just kind of came to me um, fully formed, but just the chorus. I'm feeling lonesome. I tried to write a verse. I wasn't very happy with it. I tried unsuccessfully to write many verses to that song, and it just never, I could never really find the thing. And then I met my friend Paul Lauren, and we just sort of instantly had a real rapport and a real friendship. And as you often do when you meet a fellow songwriter, you you know, you're like, we should write sometime. And I went out to his apartment, I showed him that chorus, and it was one of those great moments where I was like, this is what I've got. And I played him the chorus, and then he went to the chord change. He went to the right one. He went to the five chord and like sang the melody of that verse. And it just, he had that verse. In some cosmic way, he was holding on to that verse. And as soon as I played the chorus, he kind of came out with it. And that was just one of those great writing moments. And he just instantly saw what I was trying to do. In terms of recording it, you know, the song had that kind of vintagey feel and I wanted to give the recording that sort of feeling too and Paul is so good at that. And we did it, Brian Killeen played bass and Oscar played on it and Hannah sang on it and Paul and I both played on it too and he just understood what, what it needed to sound like and I grabbed the maracas, I grabbed the bongos, I did, you know, we did all that stuff that we love on those like 60s, you know, Monkeys records and Frankie Valli and Motown, all that stuff. And, the, you know, the hand claps on, on all, all four quarter notes and so many of those little feels. Um, the piano solo is like a, playing the, these very, like, 
kind of complicated classical licks over a rock and roll song, you know, so yeah, it, all of that stuff was, was present when we recorded that. It was just kind of meant to be like, let's just let this one be a nod to all these great records that we love. And that's also why we mixed it in mono. We decided to do it, do it as a monophonic recording because it just, it just has a different feel and a different sound and felt appropriate for that song. And so it, it felt very natural uh, the way that came together. One of the things I mentioned at the top of the show was your work as a session musician as well as performing live with uh, a number of prolific artists, including Sting. Uh, How did the gig with Sting come about? Yeah, that was sort of, uh, I mean, that was crazy. (laughs) I still can't really believe that. But I was playing in a band called Secret Someones, and we were signed to a label called Cherry Tree Records. And the guy who runs Cherry Tree is named Martin Kirzenbaum. And Martin has worked with Sting in a variety of capacities over the years, and now he's Sting's manager. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the idea was just to sort of get Sting to play with some different musicians. And he was always, always has been like very gracious and very open minded. And I got to play the NBA All Star game with him, I got to play on The Tonight Show with him and play on his record uh, 57th and 9th. I'm on one of those tunes. And then he made an album with Shaggy that I'm on a couple of those songs, and that one, Best Reggae Album at the Grammys. And the thing for me is that I am a massive Police fan. So to get to make music with that guy was just an honor, you know, and, and a thrill. And I feel lucky that I got to do it and I'll, I'll always pick up the phone when he calls <laughs> <laughs> you won't you won't turn him down no not not uh, I would I would do anything in a heartbeat with him now you're also part of a, a show called revolution the music of the Beatles uh, where you get to play and sing um, all these great Beatles tunes uh, with symphony orchestras across the United States this has to be a full circle moment for you yeah, that was one of those sort of synchronistic, like, yeah, just can't believe all of those things converged <laughs> in that way. But I think I got recommended for that gig through a friend of mine who uh, who plays drums, and he couldn't do the first engagement of the Beatles performance. And unbeknownst to me, he had also recommended my friend Greg Mayo for it, who Greg's like one of my best friends and closest collaborators. And we sort of separately got this phone call from Robert Thompson, uh, who produced the show. And he mentioned to me, you know, yeah, Greg Mayo's going to do it. And so I, I called Greg. I was like, dude, this is great. And yeah, the thrust of it was just, we're looking for musicians. We're looking for players to come in and play the, uh, the arrangements, uh, which are mostly going to be sort of true to the record. Um, and the first thing is we want to hire you to come uh, play for the vocal auditions. We're going to audition singers and we want you to back up the singers that we're auditioning. So Greg and I both agreed to it and we're excited to play. And on a on a lunch break or something or, or a, a moment when there weren't any other singers uh, auditioning and, you know, we had just mentioned like, hey, you know, we, we both sing and we sing Beatles songs a lot. You know, mm-hmm. like the, this stuff is kind of in our wheelhouse. 
and Jeff Tyzik, who is the arranger, and Robert Thompson and uh, Jamie Greenberg and everybody else who was in the room uh, let us sing a couple songs for them. Uh-huh. And I think I sang I Am the Walrus, and I forget what tune Greg sang, maybe Drive My Car. And it was just so exciting because, you know, like we were so happy to just play this stuff, but then they decided to have us be two of the singers <laughs> on the show uh, instead of the four singers that they were going to hire. So we just sort of became, I think, a, a bigger part of the whole thing as it went along. And, and we've been able to like recommend our friends to sing on the gig and the lineup we have now is just like it's such a great group of people and we have so much fun uh we're we're just really really lucky to have this group of people and and the gig itself is yeah it is full circle and it is kind of like in a way i feel like i've been training my whole life to do it because i'm such a beatles obsessive uh and greg is too and everyone on that gig is, is like so so in the minutia of those records because we've listened to them so much yeah i mean it all comes from a place of love just we love those records and we want to present them faithfully to people and getting to do that with an orchestra around you filling up the space in that way and hearing those arrangements come to life is just totally mind-blowing especially this this past fall we got to do the show in salt lake city and it was our first time playing music in front of people uh-huh. since the pandemic started. And that music means so much to all of us. And, and uh, just getting to perform it at that level, you know, with, with incredible musicians playing these incredible arrangements in these great houses. Like, you know, these, these symphony halls are beautiful. They sound great. It's just like such a treat to get to do it. Now, over the past year and throughout most of the pandemic, so many of us had to really rethink how we approach work creatively. And you did put out a a new EP called Quarantine, um, where you produced a lot of this work from your home. I was wondering if you could tell us what that process was like for you. You know, it was my first time really doing that. I think a lot of us, um, you know, we're learning how to do remote sessions I was amazed at how easy and smooth and fun it was and it felt like a way to stay connected to my friends and and also to work with a couple people who I hadn't had perform on my records before. Seems like only last night We were bored in that flight Things were looking so bright And I was playing drums with you Now each day that passes Moves just like molasses It's so much fun to send a song to somebody and then the next day you get an email and it's got a bass track in it and it's like Christmas, you know, you just get to put it in and hear what it sounds like. And to write something that comes from you and then have that as sort of a a palette for, for your friends to express themselves on is is a really beautiful thing it's it's like one of my favorite things about uh doing my own thing is is being able to invite people to make it better well we certainly want you to continue doing your own thing and to continue making great music zach jones thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your story it's a pleasure man thank you charles My thanks to Zach Jones for sharing his amazing musical journey with us. 
You can check out all of Zach's music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon Music. And be sure to subscribe to our show by visiting our website at lifeinthegrooves.com or lifeinthegroovespodcast.com. Life in the Grooves is produced by Tour de Force Entertainment Group. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment to share, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm Charles Urich. Thanks for listening.